welcome back to Strong Songs, a podcast about music. I am your host, Kirk Hamilton, and as always, I'm so glad that you joined me to talk about that combination of downbeats and upbeats and bass lines and melodies known as music. It feels a little bit like I've been on vacation, I guess, because I've been traveling and we did a Q&A episode last time, so I'm really excited to get back into a specific recording with you all and break it down and really go deep on what makes it work. Before we get started, a few things. First of all, as always, you can send me feedback or requests or questions for the next Q&A episode to strongsongspodcast at gmail.com. You can also tweet at me at Kirk Hamilton. I really like hearing from listeners. I've heard from a lot of people uh, lately, and I I really try to reply to everybody who emails me. So, um, you know, if if you've got a story you want to tell, if you've got a musical question, if you've got a song that you'd like me to talk about, um, I, I would love to hear from you and really do like hearing from people. It just It's cool to know there are actual human beings out there listening and um, you know getting something out of the show. It's sort of a big reason that I'm doing it. So uh, it's nice to hear from you. So please don't hesitate to reach out if you, uh, if you can think of a reason that you might want to. I also have a newsletter. I've written one newsletter and will be sending my second one out this week. So you can still sign up to get it. Uh, it's pretty chill. I send one out, I'd say uh, roughly on par with when I do an episode of Strong Songs. So every two weeks or so. Uh, it's just a quick little thing. It's got some recommendations, some musical thoughts, some music recommendations, some links, that kind of thing. Um, but the first one was fun. So if you want to sign up for that, you can do that at tinyletter.com slash Kirk Hamilton, or you can find the link for that in the show notes. One more thing before we get started, and that's just a quick collection of thoughts about the drums. So I mentioned this, I think it was maybe on the ABBA Dancing Queen episode, at least on a previous episode, I mentioned that I've been in the process of sort of rehabbing and, uh, and refurbishing my father's old 1960s Ludwig drum set. And I've kind of finished that, I think. Uh, The final push was taking it to a really cool drum shop here in Portland called Revival Drums. They're sort of a a local institution. They they rehab a lot of old drum kits and they really know what they're doing. Um, The tech there, a guy named Carrie, is like the nicest guy ever and was really cool about the kit and was very excited about it since, you know, it's basically been sitting in storage for 30 years or something and is in pretty good shape. The snare drum in particular, I guess it's a chrome over brass Ludwig snare drum is very excited about. So anyways, he made it look just beautiful. It's super shiny now and it's set up in my home studio and I've been practicing it. It's been very fun and it's really just had me thinking a lot about the drums and rhythm and percussion and sort of the role of the drummer and how liberating it is to play drums in some ways. I mean, so, you know, I'm a saxophonist. That was my first instrument. I also play guitar and I play piano. I play all these sort of harmonic instruments that have notes and so you have to play the rhythm but you also have to play the notes. And there's something about being a drummer where you don't have to worry about the harmony in the same way. The notes still matter, but, you know, in the end of the day, you're the one driving the bus. You're dividing up all the time, and that's really your whole job. So practicing drums is sort of liberating in a way, because each new song that I'm learning, I don't really care what key it's in. Um, It's not my first concern. My first concern is, what's the feel like? What's the tempo like? You know, how how does it feel to play it? And uh, it's been a really cool process, and just, you know, a, a, a nice return to the drums, which, you know, I started learning how to play drums a few years ago, but uh, having a a kit set up at home that I can practice whenever I want has really helped me um, get in the groove, so to speak. 
So I mentioned the drums in part because this episode's strong song is driven by a drummer. It is recorded by a band whose band leader is a drummer and uh, is often associated with that drummer. I am talking, of course, about Art Blakey, whose band The Jazz Messengers recorded Bobby Timmons, the piano player's tune Monin, in 1958. You may not know Monin, but you may know Monin. And uh, if you don't know it by name, you'll probably know it based on the piano notes that play at the beginning of the song. That's right, it is time to talk about a jazz tune on Strong Songs. This is something I've been sort of building toward, slowly tricking you all into thinking that this is a podcast that's only about pop music, when in fact, it's going to be about all kinds of music. But seriously, jazz is something that I've wanted to talk about for a long time. It's actually what I went to school for. It's my primary, you know, the type of music that I'm most familiar with and something that I I really like talking about. It's something I taught for a long time and um, will always be one of my most beloved styles of music. It's also actually something that I've heard from quite a few of you listening that you'd like me to talk about. I think, you know, people like hearing about pop music, and I don't plan to not talk about pop music on the show or anything like that, but I do want to talk about other styles, and in particular, I want to talk about jazz, hopefully in a way that'll be approachable, even for those of you who've never heard this song, or who don't listen to jazz, or maybe curious about it, um, and want to know, you know, what, what exactly is going on, how it works, and maybe just feel a little bit more equipped to listen to it. So as a result of that, I'm going to be zooming out a little bit more, maybe on this episode, than I do on some of the on some of the pop focus episodes, since it's going to be a little less about studio production and a little bit more about the style of music and the uh, the sort of stylistic approach that's taken to the song. Um, I want you to come away from this episode with an understanding of how a jazz group, in this case a jazz quintet, approaches arranging a song for a recording session, because I think that that's something that's actually really helpful to unlocking the a general understanding of jazz in general. So that's my goal: is that you'll come away knowing why they're doing what they're doing, the sort of agreed upon order in which things happen and where the order is amid what can kind of just sound like a bunch of people making stuff up as they go. Because as it turns out, um, jazz is not just freely improvised in the way that it may seem like it is. There's actually quite a bit of structure uh, going on underneath all of that. So, vital stats first. Monin was recorded in 1958 for an album of the same name. It was released by a group called Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers, which was led by, surprise, surprise, Art Blakey. Art Blakey was the drummer in this group, and he led various incarnations of this group for many decades, uh, starting in the 50s and then going all the way through the 70s and the 80s even. There were all kinds of different Jazz Messengers groups, and the Jazz Messengers was almost always a very cutting-edge group with some really young, talented musicians in it. And uh, this, this incarnation of it was no different. The other personnel on this track include Lee Morgan on trumpet, Benny Golson on tenor saxophone, Jimmy Merritt on bass, and Bobby Timmons on the piano. Timmons actually wrote Monin. I think this is the only tune on the album that he wrote, and Benny Golson, the tenor saxophone player, wrote, I think, all of the other tracks on this album, or at least most of them. And that was actually pretty common for Art Blakey's groups. You know, he had a bunch of people, uh, Freddie Hubbard, Wayne Shorter, some really amazing jazz musicians who were also great composers like Benny Golson. 
uh, in his group, and he would typically just have those those band members would write the songs that they'd then bring into the recording session and uh, and play. So it was Art Blakey's group, but it wasn't like Art Blakey was writing all the music. He was just the band leader. So this was recorded in 1958, released in 1959, which there's a little bit of stage setting that I want to do before we dig into the song, and that's just the kind of period of music that this album was released into. Uh, the late 50s and early 60s were what's kind of known as the hard bop era in jazz, which we don't need to get too much into you know, all the different eras and the different subgenres of jazz, but basically the late 50s and early 60s were a really amazing time for the type of jazz music that I think a lot of people think of when they first think of jazz. For an example... Uh, in 1959, Miles Davis would release Kind of Blue, which is widely seen as one of the greatest, most influential jazz albums of all time. The year after that, in 1960, John Coltrane, the tenor saxophone player who played on Kind of Blue, would release Giant Steps, which is another one of the most influential jazz albums of all time. So this was a really heady time for jazz. A lot of people throughout the 50s had been doing incredible stuff, and it was kind of a whole new a new era with a new generation of players. Lee Morgan, the trumpet player on this album, was 20 years old when he recorded this album, which is pretty unbelievable when you hear how completely burning he sounds on it. But um, but it's kind of indicative of where things were at. There was a new generation of players. John Coltrane was coming into his own. Miles Davis was doing a new thing. Cannonball Adderley. All of these people were sort of bringing on a new style that was versed in the earlier stuff, but had a definite, a new sound um, all its own. So what makes Monin really cool in that context actually is how traditional it is in some ways, how it almost sounds like a, a sort of, it has a lot of gospel sound to it and it has a little bit of a spiritual call and response thing that is actually a little bit more traditional than some of the jazz that other people were recording, but in a cool way that I, that I think really, that really makes it work. So let's get into the song. Let's start, let's start picking it apart. And I want to start by just outlining what happens over the course of the nine minutes that this song goes on, because it's kind of a long recording, but it's actually pretty simple when you break it down into its component parts. So it starts with the melody, which in a small group setting like this is known as the head. That's a little bit of cool jazz lingo for those of you listening. The melody is typically called the head. And uh, so the head happens, the melody. And that's, you know, the part that you probably know if you've heard this before. That's where the piano begins by playing. And then the tenor sax and the trumpet kind of respond to it. And then they flip places and the tenor sax and the trumpet play it a second time through while the piano responds. Then they go into the bridge. Um, the bridge is actually where the beat comes in. And that's kind of, you know, the first time the tune really comes together and everybody's playing and then they play one to last time through the melody where the piano reprises its role of doing the call while the horns do the response so there's kind of four sections there if you think of the form of the song as you know that's one time through the song then if you break that up you break it into four sections each one is eight bars but you can just you can think of it as four sections there's kind of there's the part where the piano plays first and the horns respond then the same thing happens again but they flip it but that's the same thing they just rearranged it and they're doing the horns doing the call with the rhythm section doing the response. Then there's the bridge, like I said, and then there's the last time through. Now in jazz, that's called an A-A-B-A form. All that really means is that there's one section and then it repeats, that's A and then A, and then there's something different, that's the bridge, B. It happens to begin with B, but that's not necessarily the, the reason that it's B. And then they reprise the first thing again. So it's a 32 measure A-A-B-A song. And that, as you're listening to this song, is kind of the thing to try to key on, is just to always try to hear 
which section they're on. And you can always kind of, you can navigate because the bridge is different. So whenever they go into the bridge, you start to kind of, you'll start to kind of hear those bridge chords happening. That's how you can kind of reorient yourself if you get a little bit lost, which is very easy to have happen if you don't know the song. So after they go through the melody, that's one time through that 32 bar phrase, it's time for the solos. The solos do the same thing as the melody. They follow the same form. It's just, they're not playing the call and response. So the band, the rhythm section is just playing a regular, you know, swing feel behind it, but it's still the same 32 bar AABA form, still the same bridge. You can still kind of hear the bridge. So this is where the improvisation is happening. So everything was written up until then, for the most part, you know, they wrote out the melody and they were following uh, a written chart, you know, written music. When the solos begin, that's where people start improvising. Now, when I say improvising, it doesn't mean that everyone is just totally, you know, it's a total free-for-all. They're they're playing things that they've kind of worked out ahead of time. There's actually an alternate take of Monin that is, uh, that's sort of interesting and, and demonstrates this. But this is where the jazz improvisation happens. It's where the rhythm section is just playing through the chords, and whoever is soloing is making up what they're playing. They're, they're free to play whatever they want, you know, generally they're being confined by the chords and they're staying within the chords of the song, but this is where everybody starts improvising what they're playing. First, the trumpet solo happens. That's Lee Morgan. He plays a few choruses and he, you know, does his thing. It's a really great solo. Side note here, a chorus is what jazz musicians kind of call one time through the form. So when you play one chorus, you play one time through the whole 32-bar song. Then he hands his solo off to Benny Golson, the tenor saxophone player. He comes in, plays another solo, still going through the form. So they're just repeating the form as everybody solos. Um, Benny Golson plays a few choruses, takes his solo. When he finishes, uh, that's when it's time for Bobby Timmons to take over. Solo's on his own song. So he's, you know, you always know when someone wrote the song, they're going to be really prepared for the chord, uh, for the chord changes because they wrote it. So uh, Bobby Timmons plays, does a great job. Um, he drops out at the end of his solo a couple times through the chorus, and Jimmy Merritt takes over and plays one chorus through um, on the bass. This is always kind of a thing with bass solos. They just don't get as much time as everybody else, I guess, because there's a sort of unspoken, agreed-upon thing that bass solos aren't as interesting as the other solos, but um, I don't always agree with that. I actually think Jimmy Merritt's solo is cooler than I realized before I really sat down and listened to it. It's a really good solo. But um, anyway, Jimmy Merritt plays, and then they do what's called the head out, so they play the melody again. So at the end of you know his time through the chorus, they pick it right back up. Um, Bobby Timmons plays his piano part, and everybody comes in, they reprise it, and then uh, they play those 32 bars through the chorus, just like they did at the beginning, and then they do a little tag at the very end. It's called a tag, which is you just kind of, they repeat the first four bars of the bridge a few times over with like a slightly different arrangement on it, and they use that as a way to end the song. That's a really standard way of approaching a song that's, you know, just play the melody, then solos go through the form, then you play the melody again with some kind of tag, you repeat the last four bars. It's super simple. It's the kind of thing they could have just hashed out in the studio right before they did it, and every jazz musician kind of knows how to approach a song like that. You can do a much more involved arrangement if you want. You know, they could have written everything out and made it super complicated, but in general, for this kind of a, you know, jazz quintet setting, that's it's usually going to be a little bit more casual and everything is going to kind of follow that same sort of framework. So by and large, when you're listening to a jazz tune, that's what they're doing. They'll play 
play the melody, then everybody plays solos over the form of the song, and then they play the melody out and do some kind of thing for the ending. Sometimes there's an intro too. That's a, it's kind of that simple. So if you can get your head around that general framework, you can actually understand a whole lot of jazz recordings, especially stuff um, you know, from the 40s, 50s, and 60s. So let's get into the nitty gritty of the song itself, starting with the melody. And I think one of the cool things about Monin is that piano riff, that sort of iconic piano riff that begins the tune. And something that I think is pretty cool about it is the counting. So a story of young Kirk Hamilton's childhood is that um, when I was growing up, I was taking piano lessons, learning the usual sorts of piano pieces. But my dad, who was a big jazz fan, um, very early on when I was just sort of playing around at the piano, which I really liked to do, he sat down with me and he showed me how to play this piano part. He said, well, this is a piano part that, you know, you can play. This is a really cool jazz song. It's called Monin and this is how it goes. And he played it for me. And that was my introduction to Monin. I think that's probably a big part of why I love this song as much as I do, in addition to it being sort of objectively a really swinging and good tune. So for a long time, I thought that I understood the counting on that. I had actually not heard the recording. I don't think I heard the Art Blakey recording for probably years after that. I was pretty young at the time. I just knew that piano part. So when I finally heard the tune, I remember being a little bit confused by the counting. I thought I knew how it was counted didn't actually know how it was counted. So here's how I thought that it was counted. I thought that the riff came in on one, like one, two, three, four, one. As a kid, it sort of makes sense that I would have thought that, that it starts on one, you know, on the downbeat of the first beat of the bar, that it, in the most basic place that it could start. I think I just always kind of assumed, you know, I didn't know any better. I assumed every song kind of started there. But actually, it does not begin on one. It begins on the upbeat right after the downbeat. So the and of one, that's called. So if you're counting one and two and three and four and, where that and is the upbeat, uh, Monon actually starts on the upbeat right after one. It's easy to hear it the other way because you don't actually get a solid frame of reference for where the beat is until the bridge. But um, it actually starts, it's one, two, three, four, one, and. So it's like this, a one, two, three, four, one. It really changes the feel of the tune if you know that that piano part actually starts on an upbeat. One, two, three, four, one. And um, also those last two notes are, uh, are right on the downbeat. So um, those are the one and two of the next bar. One, two, three, like that. And that's kind of the groove. So it's fun to try to follow that and keep that in mind as you count it because uh, it's sort of more rhythmically advanced than it seems the first time you hear it. So I'm going to play it in a second, but a sort of fun thing is that on the Rudy Van Gelder edition of Monin of this album, Rudy Van Gelder is the recording engineer, really famous recording engineer, who engineered a whole lot of classic uh, jazz albums, especially for the Blue Note label, which this was released on. That's one of the really big famous jazz labels, Blue Note Records. And um, there's this conversation between Lee Morgan and Rudy Van Gelder, who's in the booth, uh, the recording booth, that is only on the Rudy Van Gelder edition of this album. And it's really cool. Lee is kind of talking about, he's like, am I too close to the microphone? Should I be a little farther away from my solo? Because I kind of come in pretty loud. And they sort of talk it through. And you can also hear that they're doing take four, and that that's the one they keep. But also what they left into that bonus, uh, that bonus little recording, is the countant. So you can hear them count it in. They don't actually count the one, so they just count in a one, two, three, four, bop, but you can kind of hear it in your head. So listen to that and, uh, and, and listen to them count it in. I'm not staying too close when we play the ensemble, man. You mean when I take my solo? 
Yeah, yeah, well, I'll step back a little bit because I come in very loud. Is that it? Uh, this is take four. So, you know, when it's time to count in something and, and sort of emphasize an interesting rhythm like that, I always like to count it in myself. Sort of nice that on the uh, Rudy Van Gelder edition of this album, they do it for me and I can actually have the guys who are there in the studio count it in. So that's a fun way to listen to this melody is to really try to hear that upbeat. And um, it also helps if you're trying to count it to hear that ba-ba-da-da-da-da-ba-ba, those last two notes, ba-ba. So that's actually downbeats in that last note, ba-ba. Bah, that's a downbeat. So if you're ever looking for the downbeat, every time um, they play that, that's a downbeat. And you can start counting again, kind of get back on the horse in case you get off. So once the whole, you know, the, they've played through, you know, the piano has done the call, the horns have done the response, then the horns do the call, piano does the response, and then they set up the bridge and everybody comes in. And that's sort of like when things get cooking. There's one thing on the bridge that I really like, and that's where the horns split into harmony. And it's right here. So just for that one riff, Benny Golson drops down and he plays something at a, it sounds a little bit like this. I love that. This, the tenor kind of just jumps this one unexpected point and does a little suspended, uh, a little suspended harmony. Um, that sounds really nice. After that bridge, it's time for another eight bars of the melody. Remember the last eight bars after the bridge where the piano takes over the call and the horns are doing the response. And then it's time for solos. The first solo is Lee Morgan's solo, and that's really the solo that I want to focus on uh, now because it's a really great solo. Also, Lee Morgan, I will remind you, again, 20 years old when he recorded this. Um, it's a killer solo. It does, it does some cool things that really good jazz solos do, and I thought it'd be kind of fun to take it apart. As it gets set up, though, there's something I really want to um, point out, and that's Art Blakey is a pretty strong straightforward drummer. He doesn't do a whole lot of, you know, um, interacting with the with the people soloing. He kind of just plays the beat and sticks to it. But right getting into um, Lee Morgan's solo, he does this huge snare press roll on his snare drum. That's just really dramatic and sets it up in a really neat way. And I've, I love whenever he does that. He does it in between a few of the solos on this track. And it's just really dramatic and cool. So keep an ear out for that. And let's listen to the first eight measures of Lee Morgan's trumpet solo. All right. Man, that is a great way to open a solo. It's, I would say, an iconic opening eight bars to a solo that pretty much every trumpet player knows. And that's just because it does such a great job of establishing a theme and building on that theme. So that theme, of course, is these four notes. Then he develops it by walking up and doing it again with a slightly different last note. So he's established the theme, and then the variation. So now he does the theme and the variation, and then he walks the whole thing down to the end of the line with a really cool resolution.
it just really, really swings. Uh, so with all that in mind, you know, the, the first theme and then the variation and then the kind of extended end of the phrase. Listen to those eight bars one more time and just really pay attention to how well he's put together this little eight bar phrase, a way of kicking off his solo. So his next eight bars are actually equally well considered around a sort of a different motif that he introduces. It's kind of this one. So just listen to those eight bars. I won't break them down piecemeal this time, but just pay attention to how he's working on that. Like, he's kind of using this kind of thing as a as a, something to center the entire phrase around. And it's another just really solid eight bars that's kind of very carefully put together. So good. So those are 16 bars. So if you've been keeping track and you kind of remember the form of this song, that's the first two times through that initial like that part of the melody. And now it's time to go to the bridge. So Lee Morgan also does something interesting on the bridge, and that's that he plays his first really long phrase of the solo. So a phrase in jazz is basically how long you keep playing without stopping the idea. So if you've actually listened to any beginning players or been a beginning jazz player yourself, like if you've ever gone to a middle school jazz band concert, um, you've probably heard a lot of long wandering phrases. So long phrases aren't necessarily a good thing, but for a good player, a a really long phrase can be super impressive because it kind of takes you on this long trip through the harmony and um, they don't have to stop to gather themselves. They just keep on going and going and going. I should also say, I say that with no disrespect meant toward middle school jazz students as a former middle school jazz student myself. I just know that when you're starting out in jazz, it's very easy to kind of just kind of wander around on some scales and never really go anywhere. But if you compare a phrase like, you know, that first phrase that he played, and then you compare that to the to the first phrase that he plays on the bridge, it's pretty striking how long this phrase on the bridge is. Check it out. Wow, right? I mean, so that's a 20-year-old playing a five-bar phrase that's that long. Check it out. This phrase, it just walks and it goes all these different places. And even when you think it's kind of going to end, he then just lays into these 16th notes and kind of just perfectly ends the phrase. It, it shows such control over what he's playing. It's, it's really impressive. So he starts out like this. So he's playing eighth notes, but then right there, he doubles it up and goes into 16th notes, which sounds like this. You're gonna have to kind of forgive my piano playing because I'm not quite as fast on piano as Lee Morgan is on trumpet, but it's something like this. What a killer line that is. Listen to him play it. So that is easily the most complicated melodic phrase we've ever featured on Strong Songs. And this is the first time we've talked about jazz, but I do want to emphasize that it's the same 12 note scale, you know, that's in any of these sort of harmonically simpler songs that we're talking about. He's just doing a whole lot of 
chromaticism and using some chord extension stuff, and he's playing some very advanced harmony. So when people say that jazz is a very advanced type of music, they're not lying. I mean, that's a really complicated melodic line, but um, but it is still the same notes, and you can still appreciate it even if you can't, you know, pick up a horn and, and play that line. So let's listen to that entire phrase. This is the start of Lee Morgan's first bridge, and don't worry about the notes so much. Don't worry about the harmony. Just appreciate the length and complexity of this line, both the rhythmic and the harmonic complexity, and just enjoy how effortlessly he delivers it. It's a beautiful line. So when you go and listen to this song after this episode, which I really hope that you'll do, you know, pay attention for that stuff throughout his solo. I'm not going to play his entire solo here because it's a few choruses long. It's kind of long. But um, he is just choosing his notes so carefully and playing such complex lines so perfectly. You can really just kind of kick back and enjoy listening to somebody that capable do something that well, which I always at least get a lot of pleasure out of. So a couple cool things to pay attention for as the solo and really throughout all of the solos. Um, one of them is the, what the rhythm section is doing, which which is pretty cool. Um, you'll notice when they're playing the A, remember this is A-A-B-A, whenever they're playing the A, which is not the bridge, um, they're kind of playing a, a two feel. So Jimmy Merritt is not playing what's called a walking bass line, which is when the bass player is playing every quarter note. He's kind of playing something a little bit more like this. So you'll hear that groove anytime they're playing in the A, and then when they go into the bridge, he starts walking all quarter notes, and it sounds more like this. Now, that may sound familiar to you longtime Strong Songs listeners, because we actually talked about walking bass lines when we talked about Stevie Wonder's I Wish, which is a sort of soul funk song that also uses a walking bass line with the bass player playing uh, quarter notes, which, you know, is a little bit unusual in soul and funk music, but it comes from jazz, and this is kind of more the walking bass line's home. So that's a cool thing to listen for. Another neat thing to listen for are the moments when the band sort of interacts, when members of the rhythm section interact with one of the soloists. Um, Art Blakey's band wasn't the most interactive band. Some jazz bands, you know, they're, they're very, very loose and everyone's listening and reacting and changing things up based on what the soloist is doing or what the drummer is doing. Um, in this case, things kind of just push forward, which makes the little moments where people interact stand out. Like here at the end of one of Lee's chorus, they're doing what's called the turnaround, which is where you go from the end of one chorus into the next, into the top of the next chorus. And um, just for a minute, he's kind of playing this really rhythmic line, and Bobby Timmons behind him on piano just sort of gets lit up by it, and he kind of plays this thing in response to it. Uh, it's really cool. Check it out. love that he was swinging so hard that uh, Timmons just couldn't help himself and had to kind of dig in there. Um, one cool thing that I want to point out here really quick that actually happens in Lee Morgan's second chorus is what's called a quote. And I think this is another little thing for maybe people who don't listen to a lot of jazz that you that might just be cool to know about. So at the end of Lee Morgan's second bridge, he plays a kind of interesting sounding line that even if you don't know what it is, maybe sticks out just because it sounds a little unusual. So here's what he plays. It's enough to make your ears perk up. What was that? Okay. And then he actually kind of develops it and takes it through to the next chord and plays it in a slightly different key. 
you know, maybe unremarkable on its own, but any jazz aficionado will tell you that that's actually a really famous quote. So in jazz, a quote is basically when you're improvising and then suddenly you play something else. You know, maybe you just play Twinkle Twinkle Little Star or something like that. You know, a popular song or a classical piece, something that everybody kind of knows as just a little wink to your audience. Here I am, you're in the right key, it kind of works over the chords and you play a really famous, well-known melody. That's kind of one version of a jazz quote. Another version is to play the melody from another jazz tune because a lot of jazz tunes actually have the same chord progressions as other jazz tunes. So there are ways you can kind of demonstrate that you know that by playing, you know, some more obscure tune that's written over the same chords as the tune that you're playing. A lot of these feel a little bit like inside jokes. They're kind of jokes for other jazz fans and jazz musicians. This type of quote is actually maybe the most arcane type of jazz quote because what he's quoting, what Lee Morgan is quoting, is another jazz trumpet player from four years earlier, a guy named Clifford Brown, who's one of the greatest jazz trumpet players who ever lived, who played that same line on a tune called Jordu. Okay, so check this out. Just, just for reference, again, this is Lee Morgan on Monin in 1958. This is what he played at the end of his second bridge. And here is what Clifford Brown played four years earlier with his quintet on a tune called Jordu. Here we go. <laughs> so there are some jazz licks, some things that people play in solos that just kind of become iconic. And that little line, it's just like an iconic line for some reason. And um, as far as I know, that's the first time someone played it. But I'm not actually totally sure about this because it all gets a little bit obscure. That could be some folk song that I'm not that I don't know, or that could be actually Clifford Brown could have been referencing someone from earlier. But the way that I understand it, Lee Morgan was referencing Clifford Brown, and then that kind of just crystallized or solidified that lick as a trumpet lick. And it's the kind of thing that if you listen to a lot of jazz and really pay attention, you'll hear people do that kind of a lot. You know, you might just go see some random group playing, you know, just some players down the street, and the trumpet player might, or even the piano player, sax player, who knows, might play that line. And now, when you hear that line, you will get the joke. It's it's a reference to a reference of another reference. Another small thing that I sort of like imagining anyways about this quote was that actually Clifford Brown died really tragically in 1956. So in the period between when he recorded Jordu and when Lee Morgan at 20 recorded Monin, he died in a car accident. And it's one of the great losses of jazz. I mean, jazz is sort of covered with really terrible losses, but that's a really rough one. He was 25 years old and really, like I said, just one of the greatest natural musicians to ever play jazz. He's amazing. You should really check Clifford Clifford Brown out, his quintet with Max Roach, just some incredible stuff, and he died so young. And so Lee Morgan playing that lick, I like to think of it anyways, as a way to sort of, you know, memorialize or, or continually immortalize Clifford Brown even more than he already was. So back to Lee Morgan's solo, I want to move a little bit faster through the rest of the solos and not take so much time on them, but one cool thing happens as Lee hands off his solo to Benny Golson, and they do what's kind of called in jazz a handoff, and I really like the, this kind of clever thing that they worked out to do, check it out. So it's pretty cool, I don't know if you caught that, but Lee Morgan ended his solo with this line. And then Benny Golson picked it up by echoing the same line to start his solo. 
Speaking of jazz quotes, that's an extremely quoted thing. I think a lot of times when you'll hear people play this song, you know, modern groups, it's almost obligatory for the trumpet player and the tenor player, or really any of the soloists, to do that handoff. But that's another thing that, if you pay attention, you may hear quoted um, at various jazz performances that you might see. So Benny Golson's solo is an interesting one. He moves really fast and rambunctiously. He begins running up into his upper register on the saxophone, which is called the altissimo register, uh, very quickly and he sort of starts playing really fast kind of runny 16th note lines. It's a really interesting juxtaposition to Freddie Hubbard's kind of more controlled style. Uh, Here's an example of when he really gets going in his second chorus. man. I mean, leave it all on the table. Um, So after Benny Golson's solo comes Bobby Timmons' solo as a much more restrained solo. Um, He kind of keeps it pretty gospel, pretty inside. And uh, there's one cool part that I like toward the end of his solo where he begins kind of playing these almost hits. It's like he's playing a big band section. It's it's not so much melodic lines. He's just playing these rhythms that he kind of, and he does these slides down the piano as he does them. It's really cool. After that comes Jimmy Merritt's bass solo, which, like I said, is the one I kind of discounted. I think the challenge with some of these older recordings is that the bass can really get lost unless you're really in a quiet room or you have headphones on and you're listening really carefully just because it's so low frequency and the whole thing was recorded, you know, just with mics in the room. There was no, like, really tight, compressed, brought up bass. So it can just be easy to lose what he's playing. So really try to listen here. And what I like about what he's doing is that he's actually playing straight eighth notes and he's playing really far behind the beat. So everybody else is swinging, dang, da, dang, dang, da, dang. And he's kind of playing, dun, 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 dun. He's playing kind of straight notes. You know, he's not swinging. And uh, it makes for an interesting rhythmic thing that I think is really cool. Check it out. So at the end of Jimmy Merritt's solo, there's one thing that I actually sort of really enjoy, and that's getting back into the melody. So remember, if I, if you remember, I mentioned that Jimmy Merritt only takes one chorus where everybody else takes two. And um, at the end of his first chorus, he actually sort of messes up, or the band messes up. Um, he keeps playing his solo through the piano part that sets up the melody, almost like he thought he was going to take a second chorus. And then he really quickly adjusts and they go with it. But it's one of those examples, and there are a lot of these on these recordings, where someone just makes a little very minor mistake that, you know, isn't a big deal at all. doesn't detract from the recording. It's just there. And because they were just recording in a room and there was no overdubbing or there was no need for that kind of perfection, they just left it in because it was the best take. It had the best solos. So um, you can check that out and just listen to how he kind of keeps playing over the piano as the piano comes in on the melody. 
I don't know, maybe it wasn't a mistake, but that extra note just sits kind of awkwardly, and you would think if he was really setting up the melody, he would have gotten out a little bit cleaner. Um, I enjoy that kind of thing. Just that looseness that you can hear, it just reminds you that you're really just listening to people playing music together in a room. So we're reaching the end of my thoughts on Monin, but I wanted to leave with a sort of a thought and an interesting recommendation for you. So for starters, I really hope that in general you go and you know you find the links in the show notes and listen to the songs that I talked about before or after. Maybe after would be a good time to listen. Before could be fun too see what you can hear on your own. Um, I've actually heard from a few listeners who say they like to do that and then see what I point out. But um, definitely go listen to this afterward and just try to listen to all of that stuff that I was talking about. And the recommendation that I want to make is a 2012 anime called Kids on the Slope. Now, Kids on the Slope is a sort of a one-off slice-of-life anime, I guess you'd call it. It's one season, it begins and it ends, it's not an ongoing show, and it's actually made by a lot of the people who made Cowboy Bebop, which you've probably heard of, uh, including Yoko Kano, the wonderful composer she wrote the music for Cowboy Bebop, and she also wrote a whole lot of the music for um, for Kids on the Slope, and is an amazing jazz musician, which sort of informs um, how incredibly this show handles jazz, because that's what it's about. It's actually about um, some high school friends in 1966 Japan, who sort of become friends with one another um, through playing jazz together. And it's one of the best, like, versions of jazz I've ever seen in a TV show or movie or anything like that. So the central two characters are two young men named Sentaro and Koru. And Koru is a piano player. He plays classical. And he shows up at a new school. He's kind of always transferring to new schools. And he makes this unlikely friend in this big kind of oafish guy named Sentaro who um, plays drums and is really into jazz. And sort of that's kind of the, the foundation um, of their friendship. And so there's this amazing scene. I mean, each episode is named for a song, uh, a famous jazz tune. And the first episode is called Monin. And it's all about Monin. And Monin actually plays a really, really important part in this whole series. So now that you've listened to this episode, if you go watch that show, you're going to have a much better appreciation for kind of one of the central musical thematic linchpins of the whole show. So there's this great scene in that first episode, Monin, where Karu has has turned up at the record shop where Sentaro hangs out. He likes to play jazz down in the basement. Koro goes down there and sees him playing. And then Sentaro winds up over at the piano and he starts playing Monin. So, you know, Sentaro's a drummer, bless him, he's just not really very good at piano, and Koro is watching him play, and he thinks to himself, wait a minute, I know this song, that's not how you play it, so he kind of pushes him out of the way. And then Koro, the piano player, plays it. No, says Sentaro. You're doing it all wrong, he says. You're not swinging. He's like, it's all about the swing. You really need to swing. If you play it without feeling in it, it doesn't sound like no jazz to me, he says. So from there, of course, Karu goes home. He buys the Art Blakey record from the record shop, and he sits down and he wears out the groove learning how to play it and trying to figure out how to play swing. And it's this really fun sequence that then pays off in an amazing part of the show, several episodes later that I won't spoil for you because I think that you should go watch it. And it's just one of the many, many ways that this fantastic recording recorded so long ago still reverberates through our culture today. Nigotta wow, syncopation to tok tok no accent. 
And that'll do it for my thoughts on Bobby Timmons's Monin, as recorded by Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers way back in 1958. I hope you liked this episode. I know it was a little bit different, and um, I have, you know, I'm not going to be talking about jazz all the time on this show. This is the first time I've done it. I probably won't do it again for a little while. But I'd love to hear what you thought of this. If this was cool for you, if there's something you'd like to hear more of or less of, I don't know. Any feedback is welcome, especially when I'm doing something new, like I did with this episode. So please don't hesitate to reach out to me. Strong Songs Podcast at Gmail. You can also tweet at me at Kirk, K-I-R-K, Hamilton. And yeah, that'll pretty much do it. As always, please keep spreading the word. Share this show with anyone you think might like it. And uh, if you have time, leave me a review or rating, especially on the Apple Podcast app. That really helps people find it and uh, would be really cool. That's all for now. I'll be back in two weeks with yet another strong song. <laughs> you'll get it, buddy, you'll get it. <laughs>